morning, everyone. Well, we are back in the book of Romans, and we'll be back in this book until the Christmas season. So the next two months, we'll be covering the next major section in uh, the gospel, the book of Romans, chapters 5 through 8. And if you notice already, it starts with a big, hopeful contrast to what has come before. Therefore, Paul begins, since we've been justified by faith. With this statement, Paul enters us into this entirely new section of things he wants to talk about in this book. But that conjunction, therefore, informs us that what's about to follow is still tied into what preceded. And it's only if you recall what came before does the sentence, having been justified by faith, just blow your minds. Now, why, you may ask, especially if you weren't in here when we went over chapters 1, 2, and 3. Well, that's because being justified by faith, or being justified at all, would have been the last thing you would think would be written about our situation, given the current condition of the relationship between God and man that we were described in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But this statement, that we are justified by faith, doesn't come completely unexpectedly, as we recall when I talked to you in the, the, thesis, the thesis statement of Romans, is chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul makes this amazing and bold proclamation, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek after having studied Romans, in particular Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, for five weeks like we did together, you get a sense of why Paul would call the gospel the power of God, because you have a sense of all the things that the gospel had to overcome to make salvation possible and reality in Christ. Like an attorney presenting an airtight case for three chapters. Paul made it clear that everyone stands condemned and guilty before God. Paul leaves no stone unturned, no accusation unmade, no excuse understandable. No one can stand before God claiming innocence or ignorance, claiming asylum or amnesty. God is absolutely impartial. He is not on anyone's side the question is, you have to ask is, I am, on, am I on his side? And it's clear from everywhere we look, humanity has chosen the wrong side. Everything from war to injustice to intolerance and even things like inflation, they are not the problem, but the symptoms of the problem that's underneath all the problems, and that is man's hostility and estrangement against and towards God. But this is exactly why, this is exactly why Freedom, righteousness, hope, salvation must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was Paul's point, particularly in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through Romans 4, verse 25. Because we are all condemned, and it doesn't matter at all if you're religious or irreligious, if you're politically conservative or progressive, if you're straight or gay, Jew or Gentile, white, black, rich, poor, powerful, powerless, short, tall, skinny, fat, it doesn't matter. We are all condemned. We all have no hope, which is exactly why salvation, our hope, must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Friends, if you get this, this radical fact that being made right with God 
being made whole and true, what theologians call justified by faith, is not anything we can accomplish for ourselves, but that it is something that God has accomplished and given these realities to us. If you understand that, you are beginning to understand the gospel. And you know you're starting to understand the gospel when two simultaneously, seemingly contradictory things are starting to take place, but they make total sense. You are beginning to get the gospel when you understand this. It will do two things. Number one, it will crush your pride and any self-righteousness that comes with that because you realize how needy you actually are. And it crushes your fear and any self-loathing that might come with that because you realize how loved you are. And so the gospel has this amazing reality of doing crushing our pride and crushing our fear. But furthermore, you'll also notice that it increases boldness in you because you're grasping more and more the greatness and graciousness of God. But simultaneously to a growth in boldness, you also have a growth in humility because you realize how undeserving you are. And so when you, you know you start understanding the gospel when these almost counterintuitive, contradicting realities like increasing boldness and humility are taking place. That's exactly what the gospel does. So here in chapter 5, as Paul begins to turn the corner, he wants to talk about to, to those who are grasping this gospel, um, the joy that justification brings into our lives. And in these 11 verses, there are four examples of that joy. They're on the screens behind me. Joy number one, the new reality is made possible by justification. Joy number two, the new perspective made possible by justification. Joy number three, the foundation of this justification. And finally, joy number four, the new relationship made possible by justification. So there's a lot packed into these 11 verses. And there's as much as we're going to unpack, there's even more that we can't unpack. But let's do what we can. Here's the first one. The new reality is made possible by justification, verses 1 and 2. You notice immediately in verses 1 and 2, three new realities now exist between God and man. We have peace, we have access, and we have hope. Notice that right there. The first one is, we have peace through faith. Now, to be clear, what Paul is referring to here is not a subjective feeling of peace, like we feel that everything's all right. That, that's not what Paul is getting at. He's talking about an objective peace. In other words, he is letting us know that there has been, there is now an end to the warfare. There is an end, a cessation of hostilities. Now, you might be calling end of the warfare, end of the hostilities, absolutely. Did you hear when Kyle read in chapter 5, verse 10, what does Paul, how does Paul describe humanity outside of Christ? He says, we were enemies. We were enemies. Friends, when it comes to the Lord, you are either bowing the knee in submission as Lord, or you are raising the fist in defiance as His enemy. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. Either you bow the knee in Christ, confessing Him as Lord, or you raise the fist in defiance, confessing Him your enemy. There is no in-between. We see that clearly, literally in black and white from God's Word. So we now, because of Christ, have peace. An end of the hostilities, the warfare is over. Now, for some of you, that hostility expressed itself in very active ways. You're very actively opposed to the things of God. You were just actively living against Him. And I know that is some of you, because I know your stories. That was my story. 
actively denying God and the gospel, actively living in rebellion against him. But most of us, that hostility is seen in kind of a a passive, aggressive posture towards him, right? We know God is, and and that's the reality. It's I remember when we were going through the book of Jonah, I talked about the fact that there's no real such thing as atheists. Everyone does believe God. The fundamental difference is believers also believe that he's trustworthy and non-believers don't. But we all know he exists. In our text, Romans chapter 1, verse 19 makes it clear that the creation itself testifies that there is a God. We all know he's there, but we just maybe kind of passive-aggressively ignore him, deny him avoid him. Or we try to return him the favor that he gave to us in Genesis 1 when he made us in his image. We try to make him in our image. That's what we do. But now, because of the saving work of God in Christ, there is peace. That warfare is over. And that's not just the absence of conflict, right? This idea of peace in the New Testament is pulling from the Old Testament the the concept of of shalom. Not just an absence of conflict, but the presence of blessings and goodness and abundance. And the first immediate of those blessings is right here again in verse 1 and 2. So we have peace. Secondly, we have access. Paul says we have access into this grace in which we now stand. And I, I love the word that Paul is using here. The word access was used in the ancient world to describe a person being conducted into the presence of royalty. It's not just access like you got a movie ticket, you go see a movie. No, 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 no. You're you're being brought into the presence of a sovereign and all the pomp and circumstance and, and heaviness and privilege that that brings. Now, the Jews would have understood this concept immediately because they knew on one day a year, one of them, the high priests, would be given access to the holy of holies, literally the presence of God himself. So they knew what it was like to to be given access. The Romans certainly would have understood that. What a privilege to be given access into Caesar's court and and to be in his presence and and to make petition before the Caesar. We kind of got a glimpse of that last week, if you're watching the news, when Queen Elizabeth II passed away. I watched the news like many of you, and the thousands of Englanders lining the streets wanting to give well wishes to, to the queen, but none of them had access, but you could see the motorcade of the family given access into the palace because they're family. We now, because of Christ, have access, but in a similar way, outside of Christ, we didn't have access. We were not welcomed. I I know this might be startling, especially if you're not familiar with what the Bible teaches and you're just going off cultural narratives that we kind of make up, because we feel like we're okay with God. As a matter of fact, we're kind of doing God a favor by being at church every now and again. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're actually His enemies, unless you're in Christ. The Bible teaches you don't have access, you're not welcome to God. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, 2, that our sins and our iniquities have separated us from God. He turns His face away from us. He does not see us, nor does He hear our prayers. Now, to be clear, He hears the prayer of repentance quickly. But we don't have that access. And here's the thing that makes it even worse. It's not because God shut that down. We chose that. 
from the very beginning here, Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, this is right after the fall, the event of the fall. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord. So, so I, I pause that there because I, that, that is important. We chose rebellion against him. And as an act of mercy, God prevented us from reaching out our hand and eating of the tree of life. Now, why would God do that? There is some compassion here because in our corrupt state, if we were to eat of the tree of life and live forever, we could not be redeemed. And because of our actions, God says here, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It was an act of God's mercy that he drove us out of the garden, but he was forced to drive us out of the garden because we said, we don't want this relationship. You made us in our image. We, you made us in your image, but we want to make you in our image. We don't like this. So we no longer have access. Isaiah the prophet says this as well. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, you should be familiar with this if you spent some time in the church. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, to her own way. We don't walk in the ways of God anymore. We walk in our own way. If you were here Friday night when we are talking about our pro-life event, about the cultural narratives that, that uh, we now live in, this should sound familiar. Isaiah 53, 6 was ringing in my mind as Brett was talking about the cultural narrative that now exists, the idol of autonomy. And the heartbreaking reality is we went from bowing the knee to the Lord God to bowing the knee to an idol called autonomy. You know what that is. We, we, we hear it in our slogans. We breathe it. Have it your way. Live your truth. You do you. All those are messages of everyone walking their own way. Bodily autonomy, sexual autonomy, identity autonomy. We want to be who we want to be, and no one has any right to say otherwise. Now, you may be thinking here, yeah, that's what's going on in the world, and hmm, uh, you know, we don't believe that way, but you know what's sad? That idol of autonomy has crept its way into the church as well. I cannot tell you how many people tell me, hey, I don't need the church. It's just me and Jesus at Starbucks. Or I don't need the church. I can just commune with him on the beach. And they will say these foolish things in contradiction to the all-clear teaching of Scripture that we are bricks in a building called the temple of God together, that we are members of a body of Christ. We are sons and daughters of a family. And yet the idol of autonomy has shaped so many Christians' lives to think that it's all about just how you and God feel about each other. And the reality is God says, no, no, no. It includes you, but it transcends you. I'm making a people for my glory. Right? So we just have kind of Christianized some of our idolatries, but we haven't broken away from the world entirely. I kind of went off course a little bit there. but So the world has, has, has kind of doesn't have access to God by our choice. And Paul even kind of gets at this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. But friends, Romans 5 says we now have access. Because of Christ, we have access 
The way to the Holy of Holies is open. And not just one day of year, and not just to one of you, but to all of us. Come on in. We are being invited into a court greater than Caesar, to a sovereign much more powerful than Caesar. And we're open to come into the palace because we're family. We have access. So we have peace. We have access. And then thirdly, Paul says, we have the hope of the glory of God. And, and I love this. And here's some of the, the challenges when we, we can separate our, 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 when we have to break up our teaching series. Do you remember what Paul just said just a few verses ago in chapter 3, verse 23, that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And now he's saying you can have a part of it. The very thing we walked away from in Christ, it's being offered to us again. Listen to Blaise Pascal, a French mathematician and inventor. He's very insightful. Listen to what he says. We desire truth and find in ourselves nothing but uncertainty. We seek happiness and find only wretchedness and death. And this last sentence is so powerful. We are incapable of not desiring truth and happiness and incapable of either certainty or happiness. Friends, if you need hope, that is exactly what Christianity is about. If you are tired of trying to prove yourself to yourself or others, if you are tired of being insecure about your own value and meaning, if you are simply tired of feeling it's all on you and no one's got your back, you need to hear the message of Romans 5. We have peace because of the work of God in Christ. And it's not just a, a, a peace between us and God, although that's primary, that objective peace. That objective peace allows for the subjective experience of peace. You cannot truly have a subjective peace, a feeling of that inside, if the objective hostility still exists. But that's not how that works. The reason we can feel peace and be at peace is because there actually is peace. That objective peace allows for that inner peace, but it doesn't just stop with our own psyches. Because there's peace between me and God, my identity is firmly rooted. I'm an image bearer of Him, and I have the value I have because Christ has given it to me. I can have peace with everyone else. I'm not in competition with you anymore. We don't have to be at war. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. We all stand on even ground before the cross, sinners saved by grace. We can have peace. So I have peace with God. I have peace within me. I have peace with you. But I also, according to Romans 8, we have peace with the creation itself. We'll get into that in a couple of weeks. It's, it's really neat. But our sin has not just ruined us inside and around us. It's ruined the very creation we live in. But that's all been restored. We have peace. We have access. Once we didn't have that access, we turned away from it. We didn't have the keys to the house. Now we do. And we have hope. And friends, hope is the oxygen of the soul. I hope you know that. These are the new realities that the gospel brings. And so life-orienting are these realities of justification that they bring us a completely new perspective on something that's so common in our worlds. And that's what we look at next. Look at verse 3 of Romans 5. Paul says, not only this, which is pretty amazing, Paul writes, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, wait, this sounds like an astounding comment because part of the reason glorious, glory and hope is what it is, is because we're past suffering. But Paul is saying something astounding here. So powerful are these new realities. It also transformed one of the most 
common debilitating realities we face, and that is suffering. Paul says, we can rejoice. Notice what he says. He doesn't say we can rejoice for our sufferings. That's crazy. That's very masochistic. Nobody rejoices for suffering, but we can rejoice in our sufferings. And the point is, they will come. And when they come, we can actually be different in the midst of these things. Why? Because Paul says suffering has a purpose. Notice that participle that follows the very statement Paul makes. We rejoice in our sufferings, and here it is, knowing that participle is the cause or the ground of what Paul is saying, that our suffering produces endurance, endurance character, character hope. Now, Paul, as you guys know, we covered it a couple weeks ago, he knows a thing or two about suffering. And he knows the reason we can rejoice, because there is a redemptive aspect to our suffering. As a Christian, suffering has a purpose and a meaning. And I said this about our emotions, and it's true about our suffering, friends. If you can get good at suffering and not make suffering and your grief an idol, and let me be clear here, that's hard to do. There's a lot of people who have made their grief and their mourning and their sufferings an idol, and, and it's consuming them. But if you can suffer well, and the way you suffer well, we're talking about that, is redemptively, you have something to give everyone. Because while we might be all very different in this room, and we are, the one thing we all share in common is that every one of us is suffering, is, go, is either has suffered, is going to suffer, or is suffering now. That's true of all of us. That's true of all of us. And if we can learn to suffer well, we have a way to touch, connect with people because suffering is the universal touchstone of humanity. Whether that suffering is financial or relational or, 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 um, or physical, emotional, suffering's all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of ways we can suffer. And at the end of the day, there's only two things you can do when you suffer, right? A, number one, this is not rocket science. You do whatever you take, whatever it takes to feel good to end the suffering. And you see this all over, whether it's substance abuse, illicit sexual relationships, or, or even like avoid going to church because those people anger you. That, that's a form of suffering, right? Um, or isolate yourself, numb yourself, entertain yourself. You guys know. That's what a lot of people try and do when it comes to suffering. Or the second thing you can do, which is the biblical thing, is you can continue to be obedient to God in the midst of the suffering. In Paul's words, allowing for endurance to be created, allowing that endurance to create character in you, and that character increasing your hope. Can I say, friends, if you are a Christian and you suffer, continue to obey. Don't commit even simple sins like the sins of omission, staying away from the normal disciplines of grace, fellowship, prayer, serving one another. Don't disobey. Continue obeying. Paul explains why, but, but let, me kinda, let me illustrate it that, that I think captures what Paul is trying to say. It's, it's kind of like getting on a boat, sailing from Hawaii to San Francisco, and not like a love boat or a cruise boat, the, the kind of Captain Cook type boats, you know, the 1800s that are made out of wood, and, and they're crewed by guys named Crowfoot Jack and Stinky Pete, right? Those big wooden wheel kind of boat. It's kind of like trying to sail a boat from Hawaii to San Francisco, and you're trying to get there, but a storm comes about. A big storm. There's only two things you can do in that situation. Now, when I say storm, I grew up on the, in the Hawaiian Islands. I know what storms are. 
I know what it's like to see the ocean and the sky angry and the fish and the sharks even afraid. Like waves so big, you can't see the stars, dark spray, you know, the, the, you're rocking all over the place. That kind of a storm. There's only one or two things you can do. Number one, you can give up, go down in the hole and sleep and just and hope you don't get killed, right? You can do that. But when you get up, who knows where you're going to be, right? Your, your, your ship may be blown back to the Samoan Islands. Uh, you may end up back in Kealakekua Bay, right where you started from. The second thing you can do is you can go up to the wheel where, where Salty Bob is holding onto the wheel, and you grab onto that wheel with Salty Bob, and you just say, this is the direction I was going before. The, the, the last time I saw the sun and the stars, I can't see them now, but I'm going to go this course. This is where we were going before, and I'm going to hold on. I'm going to steer this, this rudder, and I'm going to keep going in this direction. I can't see anything. I'm rocking back and forth, but I'm holding on. I will obey. I have no idea how this is going to turn out, but I'm going to continue to obey, and I'm going to go in the direction that I last saw the light. And you know what's interesting? When that storm is over, when the trial ends, when the suffering is over, you're going to be much closer to San Francisco than you ever would have been without the storm because the winds and the waves have pushed you just faster. Friends, when suffering comes into our life, it's going to either make you better or worse, but it's not going to leave you the same. It, it doesn't. Whatever the suffering is, it may be just that you're temporarily broke. It may be that a loved one passed away tragically. Suffering is not going to leave you the same. It will either make you better or it will make you worse. We have to obey. But it's not simply for obedience's sake. But we obey because we have hope. Paul says this hope will not put you to shame. Other translations say it won't disappoint you. It won't let you down. In other words, this endurance and this character and this hope that's built in you in some way unknown to you now, it will make sense. Paul even says, remember 2 Corinthians 4.17, and you know the suffering Paul went through. We talked about this in our series on emotions. He says, this light and momentary affliction does not compare to the eternal weight of glory being made in him. That's heavy. And if you have suffered well, I mean, excuse me, if you have suffered tremendously, you, you, that's a heavy statement to hear. So the question is, how can we have assurance? Because I've suffered a lot, right? You might be saying, I have suffered deeply. How can I have assurance that my hope won't disappoint me? Now, in the text, Paul's talking at two different levels here. On the one, he's talking about that final day of God's wrath. You can have hope. This hope won't disappoint you. You are loved by God. You will be accepted. But I also think he's just talking about the day-to-day -day grind that we live in. The question is, how can we be so sure? And here it is. Because the ground of such assurance that even our suffering can, bring, can be a source of joy, even in ways we may not know this side of eternity, is because the foundation of this justification. Look at verse 5. So what Paul says here, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, it was not going to let you down. You can trust this 
How do we know that? Look at the, the clause that follows right after that, the grounds of it. Paul gives us assurance based on two objective realities. Number one, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. What's Paul talking about? Paul is saying, hey, guys, this is not necessarily a subjective thing. Do you remember in Pentecost, the inauguration of the new covenant where God himself gave to you his spirit? You can count that God will be faithful because he gave to you his spirit. But it's not just because he gave you the Holy Spirit that we have this assurance. Verse 6 tells us, while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What are the two assurances? It's not grounded in that we just hope things work out, that somehow, subjectively, everything will be okay. But he's saying, no, no, no. You can have assurance that even in your suffering, hope can be the result because God himself, he's given evidence of this, his own spirit, and more to the point, he let his son die. If God is willing to give up his own son, would he, why would he abandon you? This, by the way, there's a lot of parallel between Romans 5, these few verses here, and the end of Romans 8. So Paul's talking about why would God abandon you when he's giving you his spirit and his son at the end of Romans 8? Doesn't he say, hey, I'm convinced neither death nor life, angels or principalities, length or height, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then he says in verse 32, actually, let me, let me read Romans 8.32 because it's so powerful. He's making the same argument. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So let me pull together some of these different strands of what I'm talking about and tie it up here. In other words, the hope we have that even in our suffering, joy can overcome is seen in the very work of Christ that is an archetype of this. What do I mean by that? In Christ's life and his death, God hated the injustice. He hated the cruelty, the torture, the suffering that led to the crucifixion of his son. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder would actually become the source and fountainhead of all hope and joy in our salvation. And what Paul is saying is that if in that work, the worst of crimes humanity could commit, the best of results could be the fruit of it, then you can have confidence that whatever suffering that you might be enduring, hope can overcome. That, that's the point Paul's getting at here. And, and for good measure, he wants to show that the foundation of this justification, it doesn't rest in our merit, in our just believing, and our just even our ability to, to trust in that, right, which, which think, we think that would be at the very least, we should at least trust in that. He says, no, no, the assurance of this, it doesn't even rest with you. Do you notice that all three members of the Trinity in this area of suffering show up? God the Father, obviously in verse 5, who's giving the gift of God the Spirit because the gift of God the Son died, verse 6 and 9. The foundation of this justification is rock solid because it's based in the Trinity himself, not even in our ability to believe in it. And I hope that's important if you're a Christian because I understand sometimes just believing is hard. 
right? You're like the man in, in Mark 8, Lord, I believe, just help my unbelief. And what happens if my faith is based on that belief in that moment? Then it's up and down. It's like, it's like James says, it's like on a, on a winds, waves that are out of control. But Paul says, no, 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 the foundation of justification is not even resting on you. It's on the Trinity himself. Friends, if God would do all of this while we were weak, ungodly, verse 6 and verse 10, and his enemies, if this is how God treats those who are opposed to him, can you imagine how he treats his friends? And that's exactly what we are now. This new relationship made possible by justification. Notice in verse 9 through 11, three times Paul subtly shifts his language. He goes from using the word justification, as important as that is, to the word reconciliation. Why does he do this? Because justification is a legal term, an important term that it is, but it's referring to the law that's being broken. But reconciliation is a relational term. It's talking about the fractured relationships being restored. Why would Paul make the switch? I think this is why. As important as um, being made legally right before God is, our justification, as, and, and no doubt, that's amazing that you and I can stand before the sovereign holy of the universe and he'll say, you're innocent. As much as, the, the, as amazing as that is, the true joy of justification is not merely being made legally okay before God, right? Sometimes I think we, we end there. The true joy of justification is that we're brought into a whole new relationship with Him, where He says, you're my friend. You're, you're not just some creational meat puppet that I made for my pleasure. You're my friend. You've heard the expression, uh, you know, you, you know that God loves you, but do you know He likes you? I think there's some traction there. Do you know that God likes you? Right? Jesus said in John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Because servants don't know what the master is doing. And I have revealed to you everything that the Father has made known to me. It's interesting that friendship, relationship is based on revelation, right? Uh, it's always kind of neat that way. Friends, one of the joys of justification is, is not just that we're, okay, the sin's been taken care of, it's that we're friends with God. And actually, more than that, as we'll see in the next couple chapters, it's even more amazing than being his friend, but we'll get to that in due time. No other religious, no, no other system that I can imagine has this to offer. At best, at best, what our world understands is this kind of moral ethic, you do your best, you work hard, you earn your keep, you pull your moral weight, and we won't kick you out of heaven or society or whatever it might be. But Christianity says you can be a friend of God. We've been reconciled. And get this. I mean, as if, as if three times Paul talks about our reconciliation, and did you notice in each case, we are the the, the passive, we're receiving the action of the verb. In other words, we didn't even initiate the reconciliation. We blew God off. We offended Him. We took our toys and left the sandbox. And yet God is the one that continues to initiate reconciliation. Each time it talks about, it's God that initiates the reconciliation with us. We even saw this in chapter 5, verse 8, didn't we? While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Just think about that. 
God did not wait for you to get your act together before he would love you. So the question you have to ask yourself is, why are you waiting to get your act together before you enjoy him? Right, because we hear that all the time. Well, I'm not good enough. I got to get my act together. I don't want to be around God's people because I got this and that going on. And, and, and can I say this? You are living under a false gospel. Holiness is not the way to Christ. It is not. Holiness is not how you get to Christ. That's how you get. Thinking that holiness is the way is the false gospel, friends. The Bible teaches us that Christ is the way to holiness. And yet, functionally, we think i got to get holy before I can even be, get, uh, get into the court to, be, to have access. i got to be holy. That's a false gospel. Because you know what's going to happen if that's the way you live, that you got to kind of get your act together, be morally perfect or whatever? Do you know what's going to happen? You actually might succeed. Right? You wouldn't be morally perfect, but you actually might become holy relative to the rest of us. And guess what happens then? You're going to be like a self-righteous religious prig. Full of pride. We're coming full circle, aren't we? Full of pride. I did it. You can do it. I made myself holy. You make yourself holy. I changed around. I turned up and turned a new leaf and all that. You could do it too. So you'd be full of pride in your self-righteousness. Or what's going to happen is you'll be consumed by your fear and self-loathing because you have no, am I holy enough? Am I good enough? And you you know what the answer is. I'm not. So if you think holiness is the way to Christ, that's a false gospel. Then we come full circle here. The gospel is Christ is your way to holiness because there's no other way. There's no other way to get that peace and that access and, and all that grace and that hope. What hope is that if I tell you, man, you got to be like perfect and holy and spotless and moral and all those things. That's not hope, brother and sister. And that's not, I said hope is oxygen for the soul. You're going to suffocate. But if someone says to you, get what? You have gotten, God's cool with you. He's more than cool with you. He wants to be your friend and to give evidence of that, you have access to him right now and you're part of the family. Just the way you are. You know what that does? That gives a weary soul hope. And you know what happens? You long to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Because you've experienced grace. It's clear from Romans 5, 1 through 11, that it is God who initiates. It's God who accomplishes. It's God who reconciles us to him. So the million-dollar question is, well, how do I get in on that action? How do we enjoy these aspects of justification? How do we get peace? How do we get access? How do we get this hope? How do I get this new relationship? And it's all there in the very first verse, by faith. But it's not just like a generic Disney faith, just have faith and faith kind of ridiculousness. It is a squarely Christological faith centered on Jesus. Did you notice that that is woven all through these 11 verses, starting in verse 1, ending in verse 11? Verse 1, this peace is obtained through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through Jesus we have access. Verse 8, it was Christ who died. Verse 9, we're justified by his blood. Verse 10, and reconciled through his death and saved by his life. And verse 11, and now we rejoice through Jesus. It is a Jesus-centered faith. 
because he was our substitute. He was our representative. And it just makes sense. And it just makes absolute sense that the joys of our justification would be made possible by the one who the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? These things. That, that his work, even though he despised the cross and its shame, he endured it because of the joy set before him. The joy that there would be new realities because of justification that you and, all I can, you and I could experience. That there would be a new perspective we would have on this life based on the work he'd done in the past, the culmination of that work in the future, our present is radically transformed. That's why Christianity is such an expansive, comprehensive worldview. It's not just right now, or it's not just the future. It includes the past, the present, and the future. And to make sure that this was happened, the foundation of that justification was not in you and I. We would blow it, right? We would blow it. The foundation is in himself, and there's a new relation that comes from that. So in the next Two months, we'll continue to unpack the joys of justification that, that Romans 5, 1 through 11 introduces to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and oh, we thank you for grace. None of us here who know you would be here if you did not initiate, if you did not give to us the gift of faith, regeneration, and salvation, and hope, and freedom in Christ. Lord, would you burden us with our family and friends and the people that we come across with who don't have this. Lord, it's clear that, that you are working powerfully in the people of this church, in this church, and we ask that you continue to do that, not so we can pat ourselves on the back or feel good about what's happening here, but because you've called us to be a part of something that includes us, but by far and away transcends us. Help us to reject the idolatries of this world and see ourselves not as consumers, but of covenant members of your church. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.